the economic, the geopolitical power of the U.S. today derives largely from its large corporation as much as the U.S. Army or the U.S. government. Tell me, how much of a parallel do you see between the, the British incorporated empire and, and the U.S. of today? I don't anticipate a future where the U.S. government absorbs and takes over the functions of an Amazon or Google in the way that, in a sense, took over the functions of the East India Company in 1858. The great game between Britain and Russia at the time playing out in Central Asia was seen as a two-player game, but as I clearly argue even in my book, I think to your point that the great tech game is competition and this dynamic is global. At this moment of time, it seems that the US and China are the two major players, but much like Spain, Portugal were replaced by, you know, England and Netherlands and then eventually other countries like France, in the whole colonial great game. Similarly, I think in the great tech game, other players will emerge. I think India is a wonderful example of how, you know, the story today about technology is not just about the United States and China. Welcome, I'm excited to be on this next episode of the Great Tech Game podcast with Professor Philip Stern, who uh, teaches history at Duke University, but is also uh, you know, the author of a book that has just come out, uh, Empire Incorporated, uh, a little while ago, um, that talks about the corporations that, Brit that built British colonialism. Uh, but Professor Stern has written many other books and articles about the phenomenon of the empire, phenomenon of these corporations that have existed uh, for the last several centuries and how they've shaped our world. And for those of you who have read my book, The Great Tech Game, um, will also be familiar with the fact that there was a big era where these corporations were engaged in this tug of war that I call uh, between them and the state or the empires that existed or the crown that existed in the case of Britain and how that tug of war played out back in the day uh, possibly has lessons for how some similar tugs of wars that are going on today between the private sector and the nation states that exist today uh, that we have on hand. So I'm super excited to have you on our podcast today. Welcome, uh, Philip. Oh, thank you. I'm really uh, excited to be here and grateful to be here. As I was telling you before, I'm, uh, I was, I'm, these are precisely the sorts of themes I was hoping my book would speak to. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as I was saying, I think that the, the theme of empires and studying them more deeply and the colonial corporations in particular that existed, uh, you know, the era that you cover, I think is an important one that has great relevance for today, uh, not just from a historian standpoint, uh, I think, as we were discussing, but really from a geopolitical standpoint, from a policy standpoint, um, I think even from the perspective of nation states that today are grappling again with very large global corporations that uh, are often assuming many functions beyond the commercial ones that they might have started with. And so it's always fun to go back into history and see how uh, things had panned out and, and whether, if any, there are lessons for today. Um, so let's first start about, let's start with the theme of venture colonialism uh, that you cover in your book. I think that, you know, as, as someone who's been in the venture capital world for the last decade or so, uh, as I was researching for my own book, The Great Tech Game, and I came across these these terms, the adventure capitalists of the day, 
you know, and those early ships were going out to explore new lands. Um, and I looked at the structures in which the the queen or the kings that were sometimes shareholders in these uh, exploratory ships would structure their uh, relationships with the ones who actually went out there, uh, seem to have lots of parallels, if I may say, with the way the venture capital industry today is structured. And uh, so that, had, uh, I remember, really piqued my curiosity. And then, of course, you talk about this as venture colonialism, corporate colonialism, uh, and various other such concepts. So why don't you actually start off and tell us a little bit about venture colonialism as the way you've defined it in your book, Empire Incorporated. Yeah, thanks. That's a great place to start. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that concept. So there's a, maybe say there's two, maybe three ways that we might think about this idea. The first is I was trying to find a way, you know, the book covers about 400 years of history in different proportions. And I was trying to find a way to think about how do we glue them together. So the, the first one thing I wanted to point out, I guess the term is meant to harken back to an earlier period in the 16th and 17th centuries where the book starts. What we might call today an investment or shareholding, or the kinds of words we've come to use in the modern world, one of the more common terms that people would have recognized in the 16th or 17th century would have been an adventure. Um, you know, a venture or an adventure. I, 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 I'm, I'm adventuring my capital. I'm an adventurer in a in a company. That sort of thing. It was even in the names of the companies, the Merchant Adventurers of England, for example, or the Russia Company, the Muscovy Company, whose original first name was the Merchant Adventurers for the Discovery of Regions, Islands, Dominions, and Places Unknown. Right, something like that. I might have gotten those jumbled up, but we make a mistake if we think what they meant was something like a, a you know. A, a swashbuckling quest or something we might think of as an adventure today, a, a, a sort of a Lord of the Rings sort of thing or something like that. What they meant was risk, right? They meant they were adventuring their capital and often their persons, their people, their very lives, that they were risking them for returns. Uh, and so I wanted to sort of think about the idea that a lot of this colon the foundations for the kind of colonial enterprise I'm talking about involve people uh, from a variety of aspects of civil society, both within the state and outside the state, uh, undertaking these ventures through and through the double meaning through these kinds of companies, which we might think of as venturers or merchant venturers or merchant adventures, that sort of thing. Um, but I guess the other way, the other reason that the term appealed to me, I was thinking about it in this way, is that um, it also helps us um, to remember that the argument of the book, which is that for colonialism to happen, there had to be multiple um, and oftentimes contradictory impulses or motivations, right? So venture colonialism is not venture capitalism per se. Uh, I mean, you, you're, you're, you know, you've been in venture capitalism. I haven't, so you can dispute me on this. But you know, I think a lot of people would sort of uh, think about venture capitalism in a passive way as just being about returns on invest, on financial returns on investment. In some ways, but I know that I know that it, actually that's not true. That there's venture capitalism with um, ethical and political. And, and other kinds of motivations, uh, environmental, these sorts of things. But I don't know that it sort of hits people immediately. So the venture colonialism meant to suggest that um, we need to remember that these companies, merchants, government officials, uh, uh, many, many others, sometimes philosophers, got involved in these projects for a range of reasons. Some were in it for, for what you might think of as commercial returns. Some were in it for you know religious purposes, or some were in it for political purposes. Some there are some companies in my book that seem to be driven by people's um, philosophical programs. I say in the book, you know, you, you, there's a fair number of, of of people who are invested because they're 
you know, they like to gamble or they're socially connected to other people who are investing, that sort of thing. So the idea okay. is venture colonial venture colonialism is neither venture capitalism nor colonial venture. It's it's something in between and that makes you kind of think a little bit about not coming to the past with our present assumptions and then coming back to the present, having looked at the past, to think maybe our assumptions are wrong about how this works, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think the the thing I loved most as I as I read through your book was the 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 visuals that you draw of the time, right? That take you back into history to talk about how the the guilds that existed prior, the merchant guilds that seem to have existed in places like Italy, let's say the the trading states of Italy at the time, uh, similar ones that existed in you know other trade-based hubs, right? You've talked about talked about the the Shrenies and the Vux around the world, and to me, like you know the the way this concept is an evolution on that concept is what really found uh, was was what was very interesting to me. And so I want I want you to talk to me about what was different about these corporations, right? That start getting formed at the time that you're referring to in you know the 1600s and some maybe even a few decades prior, uh, and how they're different from the merchant guilds and that mercantilist era that you know often we are familiar with. Uh, and how, how fundamentally were these evolutions or different from the concepts that existed earlier that were you know part of the trading communities that were obviously still very much around and thriving before these corporations became prominent? Yeah, I mean, I think and the first thing I'd say before I get into the differences is there's a long lineage, right? So there's the, these are like the ancestors or the, the 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 foundations for the kind of joint stock corporations that emerge in what we might think of as the early modern, the 16th, 17th, 18th century period. And I wanted to make the point, I make it very briefly in the book, it was limited by how much people would be patient to read about it. But there's other books that are cited in the book for people to go think about these questions that that that's also a global phenomenon, right? That, that you have these yeah. times of merchant organizations around the world, right? Including in India. Um, what sort of diverges or sort of changes uh, with the advent of the, the joint stock corporation, I think are two things. One is the joint stock part, the part where you have, and that's the one that you see more of a, a kind of lineage uh, through these older uh, forms of commercial organization where where people will pull together their resources to have a single venture like we were talking about before so you asked what's different about say the guild a guild and there were companies that were like guilds that were also doing some of this overseas expansion in europe at this time um guilds are essentially umbrella organizations that regulate and um, organize and enforce common rights and privileges among independent traders guilds are you know uh will have multiple small you know, either individuals or partnerships that would be admitted to the guild or in the 16th and in the 17th century, um, a kind of overseas company like the Merchant Adventurers of England or the Levant Company, known as a regulated company, which is which which is more guild-like in the sense that you'd have a bunch of individual traders, but they would be under the common charter, the common privileges, the common rights, the common ambassador of the companies. The company acts as a kind of protective mechanism, but it doesn't run the trade necessarily, if that makes sense. It's kind of governing over it. A joint stock That's is a radically different model. It's a model of government, I remember, yeah. because it says we all submit to give in our investment to a common, what we would now call board of directors or CEO, 
at the time, just to give you a sense of my point, often called governors, right, using political language that we use today. So joint stock really changes um, the model of how this organization is very controversial at the time. It's not an easy transition. A lot of people thought this was was deeply problematic for a variety of reasons, which maybe we can talk about if you want to. Um, and then there's the corporation part. And the corporation part is where the real departure comes, because this is a, a kind of um, a legal tradition or a legal technique or technology, you might think of it as. Um, e interesting to think in the terms of the great tech game about law as a form of technology as well. Yeah, yeah, yes. I would almost call it an institutional I, innovation, right, of the time, yeah. It, it is, it is absolutely an, an innovation. And what this does is, this is a radical departure in a sense, because what it does is it creates protections in law, in European law and British law eventually, that allow for these corporations to sort of act, I mean, we think about, the, we confront this problem still to today or the, the quandary of like what it means to take a group of people and turn them into a kind of legal person, a single body. I mean, in the yeah. word corporation is, is the word corpus, body, right? And well, so it's taking a group, sometimes sometimes a single person, and making them into a separate person for the purposes of the law. That's right. And that is a that yeah. that that makes a whole lot of things possible. Which, if you want, we can talk about from the financial um, requirements, the debt required, for example, for colonial expansion, to the kinds of forms of government that are required to govern over people when they leave the jurisdiction of the British state or the British crown, and they're kind of trying to invent new ideas about how they might claim sovereignty from indigenous peoples, from the peoples that live there and, you know, in their, you know, on their own terms. Yeah. Yeah. No, so a couple of things. So first on the joint stock piece, right? And I think these two are really the, the crux of your argument about these venture colonialism, that phenomenon, the joint stock piece and the corporations piece, right? Now, if you look at other countries around the world at that time, right? Uh, the Mughal empire in India, for example, uh, there's obviously other empires in the Middle East. There's obviously the city-states in Italy, etc. Now, all of these places are, I would say, at that time, the, the front runners in trade, right? And the places in Western Europe where these companies really start getting built in the first place, at least to start with, are not necessarily in the center of the trading routes of the time, right? Is that, and first of all, is that right? Um, that they weren't at the center, uh, as, as my understanding suggests, of the trading routes, and they're a little bit on the periphery. But these kind of innovations really help them get some kind of institutional advantage, I guess, that helps them come into that center. Yeah, I mean, I think I think to some extent that's right. I mean, I wouldn't want to underestimate the connections Europe had been trying to forge with Asian trade for centuries, right, going back to the 12th, 13th centuries. What the what's happening in the in Europe in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries is an interest in in shifting that trade onto the sea, right into maritime uh, pathways. And and what's going on in in, in the British case of the British Empire in the period I'm talking about, especially say with that company that becomes the Russia Company, which is sort of one of the first of these enterprises, is that these other European enterprise, and I want to think about them as countries, just think about them as within various different jurisdictions, are all trying to catch up with the Sp Spanish and Portuguese, who have, in a sense, in a variety of forms, uh, been uh, leading this European, to this attempt for Europe to, to get more of a share of these trade routes, uh, both in the Indian Ocean, as well as, of course, the Spanish Empire in the Americas. So I think you're right. 
uh, in when, when you say, you know, when you point out how this is, this is the Europe is in some sense on the periphery of this commercial enterprise, when you think about it from that perspective, but it's, it's not as if Europeans haven't been trying to get engaged in this for a while. And this is like I say, a new technology, a legal technology as a way of, of, of making those connections. And then within Europe, like as, as I was just saying, there's this competition for finding new trade routes. So a lot of the enterprise as enterprises you see in the 16th century, and as, as someone who started, you know, his career thinking about primarily about the East India Company, about British India and the British colonialism in India is very interesting to think about it this way, which is even a lot of the early colonialism in North America. And we all know from say some of the more, you know, common sure. colloquial stories by Christopher Columbus and that sort of thing are about trying to find new routes to either South Asia or East Asia and basically the Indian, Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean uh, commercial world, right? But eventually these become part, they become inseparable from efforts to say, look for mines and new sorts of uh, species and, and, and mineral resources for uh, planting of people and colonization and agriculture and everything we sort of think of as more traditionally colonialism. Yeah. And of course, I think, you know, the, the other thing that uh, people often talk about, you know, and when they talk about the competition between the Western European states like Spain, Portugal, and then later, you know, England and Netherlands, is the improvements in navigational technology that these countries are trying to get around the African continent, right? Um, but uh, not enough emphasis, I think, is laid on these kinds of institutional innovations that I think allow that kind of risk capital to to be aggregated for these, uh, you know, adventurers in a way to embark out uh, both towards eventually, you know, the, the North American region, but then also for them to successfully come around the Cape of Good Hope and reach the Indian Ocean. But I want to talk about the, well, yeah. the societal implications of the... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'll give you one quick example. So I don't talk about it very much in this book, but I do in my in, in my previous book on the East India Company, just an illustration that eventually through the 17th century, the East India Company, for example, is established in 1600. And we shouldn't only talk about the East India Company. There's a whole lot of companies in that context. But um, eventually, for the large share of the 17th century, the East India Company didn't actually build or own its own ships, but leased them out, sort of subfinanced them, had them on contract, through the, the captains and the ship owners would essentially lent the ships to the East India Company. So there, one of the other points I make in this book is that when you think about companies, you can't think about them always as coherent single things. There are layers of subsidiaries yeah. and, 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 and finance instruments and political diffusion that makes all of this stuff possible. So it just sort of resonated with the point you were making about, about so, so who is in a sense, innovating in this navigational technology. It's a lot of different parties connected to one another, if that makes sense. But, but, go, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, and I want to come I, I want to come to the structures and the subsidies and the various financial instruments that these companies end up using. But I wanted to just quickly ask you about the joint stock piece for one second. The joint stock piece, as you mentioned in your book, has several societal implications, right? I, I talk about in my book about you know, the printing press, for example, and how that has societal implications, right? Uh, in the sense of making religion no longer the domain of a few and not and, and knowledge no longer the domain of just a select few. So talk to us about the, imp the societal implications of the joint stock, because I think that's very interesting and possibly has some uh, very interesting questions raised even for countries like India. 
I, I think it's I think it, the, the, the questions have not gone away in certain respects. I mean, so one of the really interesting things that I I kind of I guess I would say I had a vague understanding of when I started writing this book and was constantly surprised how much it kept coming back. It was, you know, writing a book, as you know, from writing a book is part of it. You go in and you hope you're proven right. But part of it is a process of discovering and moving around like a mount, you know, running through a maze or something. And, you, you know, you discover so much and, and sometimes you find out you were more right than you even realized or that sort of thing. And one of the things I kept coming across was just how controversial and um, uh, uh, how much of a sort of social debate there was over the political and social implications of trade stock, not just the financial and economic ones, right? So I'll give you one major example. You know, a lot of people argued for and against joint stock companies in the 17th and 18th centuries and even into the 19th centuries based on the idea that the joint stock model has a fundamentally and radically different model of the franchise than the state, than most states do, right, still to this day, but essentially states that were monarchies, right? So in, in monarchical Britain in the 17th century, people saw the joint stock as a kind of Republican sort of enterprise because everyone bought stock could more or less vote. But in, 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 in Britain and England in the 16th, 17th centuries, if you didn't have land, if you were a woman, certainly if you were a foreigner, you couldn't participate. You couldn't be a member of parliament. You couldn't even vote uh, or participate in some of these in more of the direct political forms. Joint stock said, we'll take investments from the Dutch. We'll take investments from women, right? So a kind of conservative position and then I'm not really sure, maybe it's not, not the right way of thinking about it, but someone thinking about tradition and the way tradition would say, well, this is, this is deeply problematic. On a more philosophical level, there was one early uh, critic of joint stock companies in the early 17th century who pointed out that what joint stock does is instead of creating what should be the normal order of things, which is a bond between the subject and the sovereign, it created bonds among subjects, right? Without the sovereign in that sense. And uh, he, he fam famously, the phrase he uses is, this is like the Commonwealth being made private, which is a sentiment you can almost imagine translated would be something you'd hear in, you know, today in, you know, pe people thinking about the role between corporations and, and the state. So, so it has deep societal implications. By the 19th and 20th centuries, certainly 19th century, as you start to have um, reform movements about, say, who can vote, um, how the polit how Britain itself should be organized, and what empire should look like. Joint stock, a lot of people propose, maybe this is a model. Maybe we should vote by how much land or investment in the polity we have, not just simply, you know, by being citizens or subjects, right? And you can kind of see, obviously, how that could be also, you know, radically problematic in certain ways and who it might leave out. It also has social implications for colonialism, one of my points in the book, because what is it, what does it mean when there's a different constituency making the decisions about colonial enterprise than the state itself, including you know, people who aren't subjects or citizens. So that's 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 one of the major issues. But then the, there's a lot of others that come with questions about Adam Smith, for example. I talk about this yes. in the book. Was surprisingly, I think, to, I think it'll surprise a lot of people. Surprisingly hostile to joint stock corporations, especially the colonial ones. But all of them, because to him, it he argued that it led people to take unnecessary and and uh, radical risks with money if they because they were he, he talked about it. He, they were risking other people's money the social implications of that for financial crises and that sort of thing are are, are phenomenal and here is the in a sense the um 
someone who's considered to be one of the sort of origins of, of modern liberalism, right? Um, who who thinks that actually smaller partnerships are the way you are responsible for money. And, a lot of people, and one of the things I, I'll just say very quickly, one of the things I also wanted to point out in the book is a lot of people disagree with him. It's a it's a debate. And so it's not as if everybody, Wealth of Nations came out and then everybody said, okay, you know. Yeah, yeah. Let's shift gears and talk about something. You know, for me, like this historical context is extremely important. But then I also want to bring us to how this might have some relevance to today's world. Right. And what lessons and insights we might draw with today's world. And there are two pieces I want to talk about here. The first is this tug of war between state and private corporation. Right. You've spoken at length about it, both from a philosophical standpoint, economic standpoint, political governance standpoints. Right. You, you talk about, I think at some point you say that it's very interesting to not just draw anal- analogies with that time, but really look at the genealogy, I think, which is the point you're also trying to make now. But so I want to ask you, you mentioned Adam Smith, you mentioned Hobbes, uh, and all of these guys at the time, as they're looking at this tug of war between what is considered the state at the time, the crown, and these private corporations, which often, again, are not necessarily all private, uh, as you rightly said, sometimes have uh, more of a dual uh, nature. What What is, in your view, if you were to step back and say, what has... How has this relationship between the private sector corporations and state, right? State either being a nation state as it exists today or the empire as it existed then. How has that relationship evolved according to you, right? If you were to draw out a big picture for us, has much changed? Is that tug of war, what I call the tug of war just going on and not much has changed? Or has it really evolved? I think think in the big picture, I'm going to stay on your side and say it's a tug of war that or uh, you know a kind of ebb and flow i like the 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 maritime metaphor even more right given, <laughs> i guess what i'm looking at more appropriate just, it, yeah exactly i'm coming that, from that, more land based exactly right that's right. right this is this is the <laughs> constant tension in the history of vampires for for millennia land or sea it, it, the big picture certainly over the course of the, what i look at in the book and i think it transfers into you know what happens after the book which is the modern world is that you have a kind of uh, a moment in time where where it looks as if the you know state power or that tug of war is is on or, or that ebbing and flowing is is going in one direction. After World War II, it seemed as yeah. if you know you had a lot of people writing as if this was uh, you know uh, the 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 final stage of history, right? That that states had had had, had won. You see international organizations emerge like the United Nations where nation states are the only bodies with membership in a, in a certain sense, sure. if you look really closely, but like, that um, you know, th- right. But then, uh, and, and you saw an emergence of a, you know, a, a kind of state based, you know, organization to politics, but then, you know, by the time you look in the late 20th century, the early 21st century, and I'm, you're, you know, I'm, I'm stepping on your territory here. I'm, not as much of an expert, but I do think about these things as part of why I wrote the book. You start to see, uh, you know, the emergence of a, or at least the, us being able to see a different kind of organization of, of international, of non-state forms of, of power challenging, making the state reimagine how it organizes that. But that doesn't make the state go away. Then you see a kind of response to that uh, in various policies about trying to reinscribe the abilities of states to say control their borders or to regulate those companies um, or to do something, you know, to try to figure out where those, where those companies 
uh, uh, who who it is that that sort of interacts and critique, critiques those companies. You know, it's uh, so 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 I think that the the there's no linear story here where one emerges. You, know, you watch a movie, right? It's set in the 25th century, and it turns out the the you know corporations have taken over the world and you know there's no more states or vice versa that you know it's all the states and the corporations are doing i think that's a science fiction i think what you really are seeing is this constant relationship between the two uh and to even to think of them as both coherent like i said before i mean states are made up of lots of moving parts as well as companies right agencies people working inside of them compete competition within itself as well as amongst one another um federal structures these kinds of systems, all of which, you know, federal structures, for example, also one could trace back to some form of corporate theory as well. So there's, there's, um, so I think my answer to your question, even though maybe it's a, a hedge of some sort, is to say that I, I do think that what, what you learn from looking at the history and looking today is not to get a prediction of a winner or a loser in the future or, you know, or how things are going to go. It's to allow you to see much more clearly what's going on in the present and the future without bringing to the, uh, the assumptions that say states do politics and companies do economics. And, and if you start from that premise, you don't really see actually what's, what's happening, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, I think one of the key learnings I've had from, uh, you know, studying the, the colonial corporations of the time and their relationship with the, with, with the crown or the state of that time, uh, two things, right? One is that you can think of it from a functional standpoint. Like they start off from one function, these corporations, let's say trade to begin with, or finding new lands or new markets. But then slowly as the stakes get higher, the geopolitics of it starts to become very, not dominant, but a lot more important. And that's where you see the East India Company, for example, going from a trading focused corporation into a governing and military and trading corporation, right? Whereas you mentioned the the fact that they start taxing when they get the Diwani, right? Uh, rights in, 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 in Mughal India, that's when their functions now have expanded, right? Um, and I see that as a, as a functional sort of spectrum that these corporations move on. Fast forward to today, you can see the parallels. Many of the tech companies of today might start with one function that they are focused on. Uh, for example, let's, we can take a couple of names. Microsoft starts off as a software company that's building just desktop software. Uh, but today also happens to have one of the biggest cybersecurity teams in the world, right? Uh, and so the functional expansion of, I think, these corporations is an interesting parallel I see between you know the period you've covered in your book and today. And the other piece is, I think the other learning that I see in that tug of war from earlier and today is the kind of institutional ways in which the state will often respond to regulate the tech firms of today or the trading firms of the era you talk about, right? You've spoken about how, at length about how the, the, the almost tense relationship, even though it's often... Uh, you know, they're often in bed with each other, also the members of parliament in, in England with the East India Company often as shareholders. But there's also a tense relationship between the philosophers of the time, the political theorists of the time, the economists of the time, and many of the uh, other intellectual leaders of the time, right? So there's this tense relationship about how to regulate. And I found it very interesting, and I want you to talk more about that. What are some of the institutional innovations you 
saw and how the crown in a way starts to take back some of that power that uh, you know the East India Company had subsumed within itself and what lessons if any that might have for how you know countries and nation states are today thinking about regulating big tech firms which seem to have sort of swept away some of the functions that were traditionally sovereign functions of the nation state yeah those are that's those are fantastic questions on the first point let me just say quickly actually the, going back to a question you asked me a while ago like what you know what are the social or larger implications of the corporate form one thing corporations can do legally and law changes over time, context changes, it changes from place to place. So this is just a generalization and, and thinking specifically about the kind of colonial environments I was talking about in the book. One thing corporations can do legally, structurally, joint stock enterprises because of the nature of, of how they, they're financed is they can, they can evolve their purposes more easily. Right. I mean, this is actually in the 19th century, a number of these colonial corporations that emerged, say, for South Australia or in other places, you know, a lot a lot of when the colonial office, the British colonial office was, was sort of skeptical of these enterprises. One of the things that that some of their lawyers said was, well, look, how do we know we let this thing happen? How do we know what it's going to do? It says it's interested in X, but now it's, you know, in, in 10 years, it could be doing something There's else. And can we control that? Right. And, you know, in, and to go to your second point, I mean, maybe some of the things that emerge over time uh, to think about the state or, or regulatory regimes are legal doctrines or legislation or concepts like, say, ultra vires or other concepts that, you know, corporations have charters or they have incorporating documents that bind them to particular ways of doing things. But then, of course, you know, that can always be there are ways of coming back around that to sort of figure out. And, and what know. about on the on the way that, you know, the, the empires of the time or the crown at that time thinks about regulating when it finally says, okay, now let's now let's get back into control. There's the whole idea of governor general that comes in and so things like that. Yeah. So talk to us about like how that evolves at that time and what lessons, if any, that might have for today as as nation states start to figure out, okay, how do we really think about even regulating these big tech firms that are often now bigger, more powerful than even nation states of most countries in the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that especially as you get into the 19th century, you see, a, a, but you saw it earlier as well, a great deal of discomfort with the uncontrollability of these, all of these different colonial enterprises outside the world. So the state, the state, and so, so the state, and again, I, I really I'll say this because the purpose is, you know, eventually one has to sort of, simplify or, or, or boil things down. But I, but I, I want to say, when I talk about the state, you also are talking about, I said this before, not a single body acting in concert all the time, but a lot of competing. Thing. I mean, you think about it, you know, all states have political differences, all states have, te have, have technical d debates. In, in, in 19th century Britain, one of the functional sort of dynamics or debates in the inside of the state would have been like, say, the foreign office, and the colonial office or people inside the colonial office having different ideas about how things should get done. Right. So, so, right. So, so that's important to realize. And some of them like the company model, some of them just really dislike the company model. But if we want to think about it on that big level, the States, you know, the, the British state, for example, brings to bear ideas about uh, uh, say legal regulation questions of you know, how it might use charters and incorporation, uh, articles of incorporation and various uh, legal mechanisms to hold the people 
who are running these companies accountable for their actions based upon British law. At the same time, uh, those people argued back, you know, who are these people running the state? They, do they know how colonialism, you know, this is, this is a parliamentarian representing some little constituency in North England. What does he know about this? And so, so the, the, the debate... Today, it's, back a yeah. it's a tech firm today. It's fine to interrupt. It's a tech firm saying today, you don't understand what artificial intelligence is. You don't understand, you know, 20 years ago, you don't understand what the internet is. And so how are you better placed to regulate what we should be doing, right? So... Yeah. So the, the debate, those debates, you know, and I say, you know, you, you mentioned before that I talk about, I like to talk about genealogy, that is to say, how things evolve over time to become what they're then rather than analogies. But the one exception to that rule, or the, what I say in the book, is that what I, I said this before, what I really think the history lets you do is it lets you look at the questions, right, and see how they played out. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, you see very similar things going on today with companies you know, say say some new regulatory model say there's an investigation right the, the companies are confronted and the companies are saying well we we know our business and you don't to the state this is exactly what the east india company for example or a number of these companies would say to the british state um the other thing they would do and this is this is a also i think a parallel with today when one of the reasons i wrote this book as a historian is underneath the arguments or the stories I tell in this book are one recurring theme from the 16th to 20th centuries, which is when these companies were asked to justify themselves against those who would say either regulation, we can be regulated or even more extremely that colonization is the business of the state, which a lot of people came to argue at every point in this, including from Charles I taking away the Virginia Company's charter in 1625, right? Yeah. Um, is their argument was historical. They would say, but this is how we've always done it. The, this is how British colonialism, they, and the, the South Australia company in the 19th century, it's petitioned for a charter, cites Humphrey Gilbert from the 16th century and the Virginia company of the 17th century saying, this is the British model of how this is done, right? So, so history becomes an argument. And you see this, I think you see this in contemporary models as well, saying this, the government has not been involved in this. Don't get involved now. And that's, and, and so if you want, if you want to think about how, it's, what states might take from the argument, it's not the only lesson you might take from this history, is to sort of understand how that, the slights of hand sometimes that are in those historical arguments, if that makes sense. And of course, the other thing that we talk about as the defense that these colonial corporations uh, use when, you know, when they're now under threat of, you know, regulation and, and pullback is this idea of private property, right? So they pick on that legal point that you know is dear to many in, in, in the members of parliament that are looking to regulate, right? And they know that the members of parliament or these landed elites, the last thing they want is for the concept of private property to suddenly come under question. So I thought that that was also a very smart uh, slate of hand, you can call it, or a smart argument to begin with, that whatever private property we have now uh, gained in lands and foreign territories is ours. Be well, I, I think you're totally right about that. And thanks for bringing it up. Because the, I would say two prevailing arguments is, in addition to the historical one that you can see also mobilized today with, say, multinational corporations in relation to not just any state, but, you know, international law, for example. There are two arguments that are made by companies throughout this book that are worth paying attention to. One is the private property question. The question that that not only do do these companies 
claim private property in the territories and other resources they have outside of Britain, but they claim private property in the rights they have in the first place, charters, for example, or grants, right? But the other thing that's really critical, and again, one of these other like things that I knew going into the book but didn't really understand until I really spent years grappling with it, is how many times these companies make arguments against regulation based on the fact that they're not only British companies, but say the holder of a Mughal Divani, right? To say that that these rights are vested in sometimes uh, treaties, sometimes grants and concessions, oftentimes completely fabricated uh, rights. This happens most notoriously in the late 19th century Africa, for example, that the idea that these companies' sovereignty and their rights are vested in some kind of set of agreements, sometimes conquest for, comes through different ways in different places, vested in indigenous forms of sovereignty that the British crown has no authority over and therefore can't get, can't get rid of. Um, quick example, the British North Borneo Company, which becomes a model for a lot of these African colonial ventures in the late 19th century, and is actually in a weird way an offshoot by accident of the East India Company, not accident, but it's not an East India Company project, but but is is related to long uh, sort of history uh, that's, that, that wouldn't have happened in some ways without the East India Company's expansion in the region. The British, when, when, when the British North Borneo Company is requesting a charter from the British Crown, there are officials in the British government who argue we should give it to them because actually they're going to do it anyway because they claim their sovereignty by the rights that they've sort of acquired in Borneo. And a charter is actually our only way of having any authority or, or say over what they do. So something that became, was an enabling process early on becomes a limiting process later, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that, that's, that's part of the story. So I think those two things, and you see this constantly, this is the one that I was really taken with. I don't, I don't, I probably don't talk about it in the book as much as I could, but um Thankfully, you give me people like you give me opportunities to to muse about it a little bit more, which is like I mean, think about the parallels with corporations that redomicile themselves or that diffuse their assets and their governance in ways so that they can say, "Well, I'm not an American company or I'm not a British, you know, right?" And 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 that, that oh, you can't eliminate this company. These indie company made this argument up until um, and through its removal from government in 1857, 1858. Well, you can't get rid of us. We have all of this. We, that would be to break all of these agreements we have in India and around Asia. It's a, it's, um, it's, uh, it, it weaves, these corporations weave their way into the fabric of governance around the world and very, hard, uh, very difficult to untangle. So one of the things in this book, I kind of try to make the point is that we have this idea that the states authorize these companies and they can easily get rid of them. But part of the story of this book is just how difficult it is how for other forms absolutely. of yeah, yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. So you've spoken about the concept of colonialism. We've talked about the tug of war between the state and uh, you know the private corporations. You've drawn some parallels with the big tech firms of today. But I want to talk to you now about the geopolitics of this, right? And draw and start talking about countries today, right? So you spoke of the British Empire. I think you mentioned somewhere in your book. Uh, you call it the incorporated empire as a result, right? Uh, because of, I'm assuming, because of these various corporations that are getting formed, and in a way, Brit the British Empire becomes a amalgamation of these 
various colonial corporations spread around the world. How much of a parallel do you see between that and the US of today? Let me explain. So the US, now I'm coming from a tech technological standpoint. If you look at the tech geopolitics of today, there are three models that are spoken about. The Chinese, that is a state-led model, where the, where the private and the public are more blurred than in any of the other two. Europeans who are saying, let me regulate the big tech firms like no other. I'm the regulatory superpower of the world. And then there's the US model that people talk about, which is let the corporations run free, largely, by and large, right? Um, and, and in a way, the economic, the geopolitical power of the US today derives, at least from the outside's perspective, outsider's perspective, derives largely from its large corporations as well today. As much as the US Army or the US government, it derives from the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons and the Teslas and the Starlinks of the world, right? You look at the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the US tech firms are, are active participants. It's a bit of a controversial question, but tell me how much of a parallel do you see between the, the British incorporated empire, as you call it, and, and the US of today? It's a really, that's a good question. It's a hard one to answer. I think I, I, I can, I can say a few things that probably contradict myself in the process, but the, the um, that's okay. uh, that's okay. you, know, you know, you know, in the one sense, I, t I see your point. I've been asked this before, you know, is you know, this concept that, that, that we've heard before of, of corporations as a, also as a form of soft power, right? The, which is a hard and soft. I, I find are these, I find those concepts very difficult to get my head around, but the idea that also it's, it's a cultural imperialism that corporations help to, to, to produce as well, right? Um, movies, right? Uh, consumable goods, these kinds of things. Yeah, but I'm, I'm asking actually, I think less about the yeah. soft power of these corporations, but really the hard power, right? The East India Company, yeah. of course, has soft power implications. It teaches the whole world English. It, you know, brings British society and British institutions to be the aspirational way of being and all of that. But I'm actually right now talking primarily about the hard power that these corporations uh, accumulate, bring, and then leverage at some point. Right. And that's what I was getting at, which is to say that, that I think in that sense, you can see them working together or in tandem, uh, having having um, uh, uh, kind of relationships that forward one another's sort of interests. Right. But I think in, in another way, though, there's there's a difference between the formal empire that's the British Empire, in a sense, built and was administering the American Empire. And it's in this sense, which is when I say that, that when I talk about an incorporated empire, the British Empire, I mean, literally absorbing the functions of these companies as territorial enterprises. No, right? definitely. So an, definitely. The U.S. It, empire so I, model. It, and, you know, I had a right. conversation with Daniel Amovar about this. That, uh, I don't know if you've come across his work, but yeah. oh, no, he talks yeah. about the empire in hiding, right? I mean, uh, or the pointillist right. Right. So clearly the American empire model is very different from the British colonial empire. Right. For very yeah, exactly. And so that, that's, I, I think, I think that's a difference, but I think the, the, the differences are instructive, right? It can tell, it can help us. It doesn't mean that the U S is not an empire. It doesn't mean that, that concepts of colonialism and imperialism can't help us to understand what's going on in the U S but it's, it's following this model as I'm thinking about it, as we speak is following a different kind of trajectory in that I don't, I don't expect a future um, I could be wrong, right? I'm, I, I, you know, I, I'm much better telling you what happened in the past than what's going to happen next. <laughs> I, think right? um, right? I think all but, of us but, are. But I, I don't anticipate a future where where the U.S. government 
absorbs and takes over the the functions of an Amazon or a Google in the way that it took over the East India the British government in a sense took over the functions of the East India Company in eighteen fifty. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. So so, so right. in that sense it's it's a different it's a it's a different trajectory and it's a different model. So so there's the the parallels can be seen in the kind of regulatory tug of war or ebb and flow we were talking about before. But in terms of the different models and forms of what that empire looked like. Now, I think at the margins, you actually do see um, possibly some tension over, over. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't think what I just said is 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 a hundred percent true, right? I, I think there are some sectors where government asserts itself and says, "No, we're going to do that now," um, and 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 private corporations don't do that now. Or you are starting to see things working themselves out. I think maybe possibly like say uh, space exploration. And 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 uh, for lack of a better word, possible colonization is one of those areas where we're, we're you know if you if you ask some people uh, is one of those areas where where there's an interesting future. And I've been doing a little work on this now, you know, moving forward. What are the implications of the work I do on, on thinking about these questions? Where that's an open question about uh, you know uh, which one is going to do it, especially when they're so entangled. When companies like SpaceX, for example, do so much provisioning of of space agencies, for example, or something like that, um, when you uh, when you see uh, uh, states also changing the relationship to these enterprises, so so there's that's that that's maybe one area where we might think that there's you know you could be looking and saying, well, here's a different trajectory. Uh, maybe Amazon isn't the right model or isn't the right. Um, uh, the, the the right thing to look at in terms of thinking about will it get absorbed by the state or will we see the same kind of incorporated empire, um, but maybe maybe that's a question that uh, you know an area where it, where one could see a privatized future or a public future or some combination you know some combination of both, and and we sort of have to watch how it develops. Right? Yeah, I mean I mean the space piece that you brought up. I mean I wanted to talk about that also. I think there are clear parallels there. Right. I mean there are clear parallels that this is now a new territory, it's new lands in a way, it's a whole new ball game. So let the private sector take it. I mean, we don't care. Maybe once we have a clear sense of what is really at stake, the governments might say, much like the Crown said, now that we know how valuable the East India Company and its assets in India are, now let's come in. But really when they come in also, as you're rightly saying, it's still a little bit of a hybrid, right? I mean, there's the, the, the governance piece comes in on top, but the trading corporation and the nature of the East India Company's operations on the ground still say partly similar, at least to how they used to operate even before the crown took over, right? And one can imagine a future today where, yes, maybe the actual space exploration is being undertaken by private firms. E-commerce is being done by private firms. Cloud infrastructure is being built by private firms. Cybersecurity capabilities are being built by private firms, but there is a sort of a governor general sitting on top. Well, and, uh, you know, or conversely, yeah, but the question is then what direction, you know, who has power in those circumstances? And that's that's what I'd like to look at and sort of assess in a case-by-case basis. So, uh, you know, when you bring up the example of colonial India, one of the points I make in the book, maybe a little too quickly in retrospect, is that, you know, historians of of British colonialism in India tend to really talk in general about two phases, right? There's the, the, the company's period, which ends in 1858 and then the crown period, which begins in, you know, after that, but, but just to your point, 
post-1858 colonial India is filled with companies, right? Of course it is, right? And those companies are doing everything from, you know, coal mining and, uh, and tea plantations to banking and government finance. And so, and those companies are an artifact, not in all cases. I mean, a lot, a lot happens after 1858, but there's a lot of companies that were operating under these think of railways are a phenomenal example of this right where where you know thinking about them just purely private enterprises i think is a mistake right and this is talking about the 19th century and so you can see parallels today i think they're who's doing the governing in any local or particular situation uh historians like to talk about um informal versus formal empires you know empires where they're literally control or informal empires where there's economic uh, persuasion and uh, and pressure right yeah and my the response i always have to that is that i don't really feel like informal empires often feel all that informal to the people who experience them right to the people who are subject to their power right it's a way historians or, or people especially in the west can kind of look and sort of d- d- remove and say well it's informal it, it, it's a little less harsh but the truth is that it really weaves its way into um, not just finance, at, you know, but but actually real on the ground um, control. Even if that control is really just a, a you know a, a small, a, a, a relatively small to a nation state, for example, a, a, a small a, a area, or it's a, a what you might think was a corridor that a railway runs through. It's still, especially in the 19th century, a, for, a, a location of, of private governance, and you know, and in terms of the international. Uh, implications you're talking about, I think, you know, to get back to this question of, of incorporated empires, I think you also need to think a little bit about the, we talked about this briefly before, the capacity company is not just tech, you think about oil or natural resource companies, to almost far, follow foreign policies that diverge from the states as well. So, yes. you know, once they're in the international concept, you know, and this is not me, I studied, but there's, there's, there's great work, there's a book uh, by, by journalist Steve Cole called Private Empire, which I like a great deal. It's, you know, it talks about ExxonMobil's capacity to run its own foreign policy around the world, right? And so there's, there's, um, yeah, sometimes it's in line with the government, sometimes it's not. And it's, it's in that kind of gray area that I think you find the most interesting relationships. So in a way, you think about American empire, maybe the way to think about it, or any kind of empire is not as, maybe this is how I would put it, um, it's not it's 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 perhaps misleading to think about it how does it get incorporated into the state or or the united states but it's actually a whole constellation of enterprises and interests that are leveraging that power in some way to produce this kind of imperial regime under a variety of what you might think of as a kind of um plurality of jurisdictional forms and you think about that whole big umbrella yeah, it's more like the post-1857 British Empire in India than the pre-1857. So it's not one company. For example, you're saying it's the plurality well, of organizations in a way that have that are benefiting still from the, uh, you know, the empire existing and the empire being in control, uh, formally or informally. But there's a plurality of corporations that are then benefiting. I think the pre-1857 British India, British, British Empire in India also was not just the East India Company. But if you think about, say, the early railway companies I was just talking about before, there are also um, other corporations inside. And that's what, what I was talking about earlier when we first started off, about how companies are not single entities. And then if you if you then telescope out and don't think of the British Empire as just the East India Company, but you think about the whole constellation of the hundreds of, hundreds of companies that I talk about in the book, actually 
early 19th, 18th, 17th century empire also looks a little like this, where the quote-unquote British empire, there's say people from Britain exerting claims over places around the world, is not just the British states. In fact, that's a very small part of it. But it's this whole constellation of different entities, which I think you can think of as at war with each other and in conflict with each other, but you can also think of as working together in some kind of, um, you know, in the book, I, I, and I don't know how people will make of the metaphor, I still myself debate it, but I, in, the, in the book, I think I talk about it as a kind of chaos theory, where there's all yes. of these different things that are moving around, but you can see patterns in That's those. That's right. I, I think uncoordinated, you said, but definitely not unintentional. That is the thank you. Yeah, that, that 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 I did say that, didn't I? Um, but that that's and that's what I mean, right? It's it's not it's not working like a concert where it's all yeah. being conducted centrally, but it is somehow making a unity, even though it's yeah. even though you know. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. maybe yeah. that that's the right way. That's maybe that's my long winded answer to your to your excellent yeah, question. We we write yeah. better than we. That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's a great characterization of the U.S. empire and I think capturing the nuances of it also. And, you know, the other piece I want to pick on before we conclude is the way these corporations, I think what you just mentioned about ExxonMobil, the way these corporations will often sometimes align with, but sometimes not with the global geopolitics of the time. You talk about, I think, the fact that the Anglo-French wars are, are a source of worry as well for, for the... East India Company, right? And I thought that that parallel again was very interesting that, you know, the East India Company does not want the Anglo-French wars uh, and the implications of that to spill into their holdings in India. Of course, it ends up happening, right? As, as uh, many of us in India know, I think, as you refer in your book, the, the Anglo-French rivalry spills into, especially into Southern India, uh, a lot. And the East India Company doesn't want it, but it's a receiver of the geopolitical implications of that broader geopolitical rivalry. And interestingly, the analogy that was you know happening in my head at the time is the current US-China geopolitical competition and how that, whether the tech companies want it or not, is spilling into their sphere of work. It's impacting how much work they can or cannot do in, you know, in China, for example, from the US standpoint. And vice versa from the Chinese tech firm standpoint, right? And it's it's spilling into it and whether they want it or not, their foreign policies in a way have to align or their foreign uh, commercial policies in a way have to align, much like I think the East India Company eventually had to align with the broader geopolitical competition in play. What's your sense of that? I, I think that's to some extent true. I, I, would have, I, would, I would want to complicate it with two, two, two thoughts. One is that I think you also can tell a story about these companies pushing the limits of this kind of bipolar foreign policy and evading it and attempting ways of, of, uh, uh, of challenging it as well. So you, this is a great example, right? So, so you, you, do, you, you see that those interests are different, and I don't know that it necessarily means that that the interests of a large tech company or an, or an oil company are, are going to inevitably snap in in line with the foreign policies of states. I think there's a lot of capacities to, to, to get around them in a variety of ways, again, by finding themselves in places, you know, say, say um, uh, claiming 
relocating certain forms of business. Subsidiarization is a remarkable tool of of getting around these sorts of things that we're not doing. It is this other company that's sort of related to us, right? Which which these colonial companies did in a variety of ways all the time. The second thing I would say to this is that um, you know we inherited the, this Anglo-French story, which I do tell that story because it is an important one in the 18th century for sure. But this 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 idea that the 18th century was uh, other historians may disagree with me. You can have other people on to say, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. But, um, you know, the story of the Anglo-French conflict, though it was one that was very relevant at the time in the 18th century, was also one that became, how do I put this, that we started to, that that was, the story of Britain's rivalry with France is one that I think was told a lot in historiography in the second half of the 20th century, in which the world was built on a kind of bipolar political you know, the concept there was a, a, you know, a an epic battle between the United States and the Soviet Union, for example. People thought about the world's always going to have two powers, and they're always going to be facing off against one another. But I think, you know, I think India is a wonderful, you know, example of how, you know, the story today about technology is not just about the United States and China, right? It's about a lot of other players, uh, both nation states and companies. So to reduce the the, I think to reduce the world to a story about these two facing off is to follow one model. And I, I think to ignore that's a mistake. I think that it's absolutely there. But I think you think globally and the moving pieces become a lot more complicated, especially when something like technology, we're figuring out where is it? Like, where are we right now having this conversation? It's very hard to answer that question, right? Um, you know, this comes yeah. up a lot. It comes up a lot in regulatory regimes. You probably know a lot more about this than I do of like, you know, for example, can... Can it can it, if if a if a tech company's servers are located in a particular place, does that give the the jurisdictional authority of that place a right to regulate it, or is it you know taking place in, you know, are, are we are we in the United States or are we in India right now? You know, no, no, absolutely, we, absolutely. In fact, know, I mean, the the title of my book is a play on exactly that idea, right? Exactly, that exactly. Yeah. The the game, you know, the great game between you know Britain and Russia at the time playing out in Central Asia was seen as a two player game, but as I clearly argue, even in my book, I think to your point that the great tech game is competition and this dynamic is global. The game is global. Every country has a shot at it. Uh, of course, at this moment of time, it seems that the US and China are the two major players. But much like Spain, Portugal were replaced by, you know, England and Netherlands and then eventually other countries like France in the whole colonial great game. Uh, similarly, I think in the great tech game, other players will emerge in my in my view. So I agree with you that I think maybe the bipolar frame of the world is not necessarily the only one we should be viewing the world with. I just mean that the, the history that, that I talk about in the book helps us to see maybe the story as taking place in multiple dimensions at once, right? Um, yes. And, 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 then, and then at any given time, I think that big political story of these two kind of nation states sort of Facing off against each other is a, um, a you know is is inescapably important, right? But I think that actually, if you only leave it at that story, then you actually you might miss the dynamics of the complexities, you know, of uh, you know any number of questions about including. So you mentioned French companies, you know, towards the end of the book in the nineteenth century, just as a matter of an example, I talk about sort of colonization in in Southeast Africa in the nineteenth century. And, you know, try to make the point that, well, this is a Portuguese colony run by a Portuguese chartered company with a majority of British and French investors. Who's it? What nation is it? 
that's doing this well, colonization absolutely, absolutely. It depends on the you know, depends on the the direction you look at it from you know and especially uh, with transnational investment transnational governance transnational um, uh, operations and businesses the diffusion of production uh, with technology the diffusion of you know you talk about something like yeah, blockchain absolutely. it's really hard to put your finger on it right you know so oh, it is absolutely. Cool. i think absolutely. that's the answer yeah yeah and that's right i think and that's the complexity you have to look at it with i completely agree um but this has been absolutely fascinating uh philip uh the you know the thing that we do towards the end of every podcast episode is i ask you two questions um simple ones uh for a change um one which book would you recommend to um you know of course other than your own and other than mine uh for listeners of our podcast to listen to if they're interested in um you know the kind of themes we've been talking about one and second uh recommendation of a guest that you think we would also enjoy having um sometime down the line on our podcast oh that's well this is this is tough um so uh you know i'm going to regret my you know i'm going to think of five more answers to your question as soon as we hang up but um you know i mentioned one the one that comes to mind me because i had mentioned it already is that private I, empire. I, uh, is, is private empire by steve cole it's it's not a rel- it's not that recent of a book um, but I think it, 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 it's a, for people thinking about this, uh, especially when it comes to the, if you want to think about the, I, I find the book very thought provoking, it's very inspiring, some of the stuff I've been writing. Um, and I think that um, one of the things that helps you to think about is how this works with material products like natural resources, as well as the sort of more diffuse questions that come up with technology, right, in terms of jurisdictional question. So I, I think that's, that, that's, that's always been a, a, a really, a really powerful, powerful question. Yeah. And of course, um, in addition to our, our two books, much, very, those definitely we should recommend. And what about um, but that, that's, that's what comes to mind. A guest, a guest that comes to mind. That's a really good question. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I, I don't know that he's interested in these things, but Steve Cole, who wrote, who wrote that book, I think is a, is a, very, it would be a very uh, interesting person to have, uh, to 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 think about having, I think that um, uh, someone like uh, I know that someone like William Dalrymple, who we were talking about before, who's had um, uh, who's talked about this in his recent book, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners would know, with particular uh, reference to the East India Company, is a, uh, a very interesting, uh, a very interesting possibility. Um, I think there's so many. I'm like, you know, I'm actually sneakily trying to look over my bookshelf, just try to pick one of the many, many <laughs> people do. because. One, 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 of the, one of the many, um, you know, when you write a book over 400 years, uh, I mean, it felt like it took 400 years, but I mean, just covering the study of 400 <laughs> years, um, you know, it's not, it's a book where I owe so much debt to so many good, yeah. so much good scholarship and so much, so much work uh, that there's so many different, different kinds of people. So I'm going to leave it at those two uh, who yeah. I think, uh, who I think, I think would, would, uh, would be excellent. Um um, um, I'm sure I will think of others and then you'll have to splice in, uh, my recommendations. Um, uh, <laughs> no, perfect. Yeah, now yeah, these are, these yeah, are both yeah. great recommendations mm-hmm. and great recommendation on the book as well. Uh, and yeah. thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. There's still another 10 questions I could have asked, but, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we've had the chance to do this and uh, we'll hopefully be in touch. And if, you know, your, uh, future books or your future research brings you to India, please do, do let me know. Uh, We'd love to get together a group of folks here who are interested in empires and geopolitics and 
tech firms and and nation states and you know all the things that I think you uh, breathe day in day out. I absolutely and thank you so much for the opportunity and I will take you up on that if you're over here. Same same goes. I, I I really am thrilled with the opportunity and I speak to a lot of historians very interested in colonialism, but to think about the implications for this for for the world today and the future as as much as I uh, get nervous about predicting the future. I really appreciate the opportunity to speculate why. Yeah, and I think it's very important it. also that, you know, we continue to draw distinctions between, there's a lot of, I mean, and this is a piece we didn't get too much, but uh, hopefully in a future in-person conversation, there's a whole talk of digital colonialism, data colonialism, terms like these that get thrown around. And I find that sometimes they're thrown around a bit too loosely, um, but they're worth sort of studying and then unpacking, I think in the kind of complexity that you often bring to your answers. Um, but that's for a future conversation, hopefully in person. Uh, and thank you again so much for taking the time to be with us. I'll, I will look forward to that. Thank you so much.